We're going to read two chunks from this chapter, but I want to just very quickly bring you up to speed because I know that some of you, um, I know some of you have not been with us in this series. So um, the story is Daniel's a Jewish boy who's taken from his home city, Jerusalem, lifted a thousand miles and put it in the heart of the king of Babylon, the, the kingdom of Babylon, in, in, in the city of Babylon, and he's a, uh, a foreigner in a strange land, a, a worshiper of Yahweh, but having to serve at the king's table, a man called Nebuchadnezzar, who by all accounts is one of the most ruthless, most ruthless and um, powerful and uh, just incredible leaders the world has ever seen, and yet a deeply flawed, proud man. And so the, the, the interactions between Daniel and him and then let some later kings as, it, as the story goes on are so in- interesting for us as Christians. Because here we have a guy who we respect to the uttermost in a situation that he didn't choose, confronted with all the challenges of what it meant to be um, a believer in God in a foreign land. And so it's such a resonance for you. uh, If you love Jesus and you're here in a city like London, I'm wondering what is it that God is calling me to in terms of lifestyle, thinking, all those kinds of things. And so... Daniel, from being in his teens, lives in Babylon until he's probably uh, in his 70s, 80s, and the guy is, uh, just lives out his life in service to the successive kings. He sees a bunch of kings. In fact, he sees the whole empire fall, as we'll see in a minute, and a new one arise. And so here we come into the story where Nebuchadnezzar has just vanished off the scene. And actually, we're going to cut in with a new king called Belshazzar, and no explanation given of how this guy came to be king. And Daniel just tells us a little bit of a story about what happened with Belshazzar. So we will read from the first verse. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the, of the thousand. And Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, it really means predecessor, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. You ever heard the expression, the writings on the wall? This is where it comes from. We're going to jump down now to verse 17. So what happens basically is he panics. Who can tell me what this writing means? He, he gets all the kind of magicians and enchanters together. See if anyone can tell him. No one can tell him. And then the queen, she's called probably the queen mother, tells him, there's a guy who can tell you. It's the same story we've encountered before, isn't it, in the book of Daniel. There's a guy who can tell you what this stuff means, and his name's Daniel. And so he says to Daniel, I'll give you all this wealth and riches and power if you can tell me what this writing on the wall means. And then we come in at verse 17 when Daniel answers him. He says, Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself 
and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. So he retells in the story of what happened to his predecessor Nebuchadnezzar, how he went mad. And it was a madness that came from God to teach him not to be so arrogant, that everything he has comes from God. Now Daniel turns this to Belshazzar. He says, And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you've lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you've praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hands is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence, the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him, that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. Darius, the Mede, received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Okay, so we've met Daniel And we've been impressed by him. I mean, extraordinary man. A man who is faithful to God, loves God, honors God, worships God. A man of deep, felt heart conviction that wouldn't allow him to compromise. A man of real integrity. A man of um, immense charm as well. And a man who suffered. You know, whenever you meet somebody who has suffered a lot in life, you immediately feel something of a respect for them. Um, that they've encountered things you haven't. Daniel was one of these guys. He suffered a great deal. He's walked with God through all that suffering. And just to top it off, he's a man of exceptional gifts and abilities. Um, Very, very intelligent. And added to that, God's favor on him to be able to understand things that other people should not be able to understand. And yet, despite all this, when we encounter Daniel throughout this book, he's not an arrogant guy. In fact, Whenever you see him interacting with Nebuchadnezzar, the old king, there's a real sense of respect and honesty. I mean, it even comes across in the way he retells the story of what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He talks about him with respect as being the most powerful man the world's ever known. 
And yet he's, he's quite honest. He says that you know, Nebuchadnezzar got above himself and became arrogant and God dealt with him. And so there's this kind of strange thing that Daniel's not a proud man and he can honor the, the rulers that he's under. But something very different is happening in this chapter. Because Belshazzar, who just comes into the picture with no introduction, apparently um, Nebuchadnezzar died, handed on the kingdom to his son, Evil Merodach, which is a great name, isn't it? Evil Merodach. And uh, Evil Merodach is killed, another guy takes over, he's killed, another guy takes over, and then a guy called Nabonidus comes to the throne. Nabonidus' son is Belshazzar, and Belshazzar's ruling um, for him. So that's just to give you a picture of what's happened in the intervening years. And none of that's explained. And I think part of the reason is that when you read this chapter, you don't feel that Daniel has any respect for this guy Belshazzar in the way that he did for Nebuchadnezzar. It's very curt in the way he talks to him and about him. He's a kind of a young punk of a king who's just gone to the throne by accident because his daddy put him there and has no clue about leadership or ruling. And Daniel, who's a seasoned governor, who's, who's basically run the kingdom for, for decades, doesn't seem to have much respect for this man at all. And in many ways, this Belshazzar, who's really the center of our focus here, I think in many ways he captures something of, of, of your typical millennial. Many of us belong to that generation. And there's something about the way he conducts himself, his mindset that so deeply resonates with our generation, a generation that's received so much that we didn't work for, and is very much reflected in the way Belshazzar conducts himself. And I want to show you a few ways that I think you'll see some crossover, maybe with yourself, as well as with the wider generation that we're a part of in the life of this man, Belshazzar. And then we'll th- see how God spoke to him and dealt with him. Let me show you three things about him. The first is this. He's a, he's a man who lives for pleasure. He's a pleasure seeker. He's a hedonist. It's the first thing we're told about him is that he throws a party. Belshazzar, verse 1, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Now, there's nothing wrong with him being a guy who celebrates something of the wealth that is his. I'm not saying that that in itself is a bad thing, that he's a man who enjoys life. The Bible never condemns that. It doesn't put it like that. But what we do see here is a guy for whom seeking pleasure and living for the good stuff of life has become the most important thing about him. Is, his, is kind of reason for living. And I think it's at that point that you begin to see, wow, okay, this makes a lot of sense in terms of the city we're in, what people live for. Now, the reason why I say that about him is a couple of things. One is that it's the first thing that Daniel tells us about him. He's a party boy. He's a playboy. He likes to just throw parties with money he didn't earn. And, uh, you know, first impressions matter, and there's a reason why Daniel tells you this about him first. Doesn't tell you anything else about him, just says, this guy threw a party. And even more importantly, what you wouldn't know, but which the commentators and the historians tell us, is that this very night, when Belshazzar is throwing this great party, his, the city in which he's ruling is surrounded by a foreign army. They're under siege. And maybe he thought that the city was impregnable and it wouldn't fall, Or maybe he just is burying his head. And I get the impression this guy is just very childlike. He's just just immature 
and he's burying his head in the sand and he's throwing a party because he can't face the realities of what is going on in his life. The fact that his kingdom is about to fall and instead he'd rather just enjoy his popularity while he can, lavishing upon his guests wine and meat and all kinds of stuff, just enjoying the party life while it lasts. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's the kind of mindset he has. And this pleasure hunger, then, is one of the most dominant things about this guy's mindset in his life. And I'm sure it's associated with his desire for popularity, for being a people pleaser. At least Nebuchadnezzar, his predecessor, didn't care about pleasing people. You know, he didn't care whether he was popular or not. He just told them, you better worship me. <laughs> this guy, this guy's not like that. He wants to just be the, 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 the most popular guy in the room and throw a great party. He's a pleasure seeker. And I wonder if that's true of you. I wonder if when you think about what your life is about and what you're living for, is it enjoyment that's the dominant thing? And is, has it become such a thing in your life that you, you're not facing the realities of your spiritual life, of your situation before God, of what God thinks of you? He's a pleasure seeker. Let me tell you a second thing about him. Belshazzar is profane. I'm going to tell you what this means if you're not sure. But you see what happens in these verses. It says, he tasted the wine, and then he, want, he thinks, I know what can make this wine better. He goes and raids the, store, the treasures of, of the Babylonian storehouse and brings all the gold vessels that came from the temple in Jerusalem, Yahweh's temple, the God of the Jews, all these objects and cups and things, candelabras and stuff that would have been in the temple, Nebuchadnezzar brought them to Babylon. And then Belshazzar says, we're going to use those for my slap-up party that we're having tonight. Now, you'd think that superstition alone would stop a man from using the vessels from a foreign god's temple. You know, most people would hesitate to do something like this for fear that maybe this God might get angry if this God exists. And these guys are pluralists, so I think he would have assumed that the God exists. But he has no fear of God. And instead, he just tramples on, on, on God's name by ta- doing this. How you treat God's stuff matters. Dale Ralph Davis, who's writing about this chapter, he describes it like this. He says, we can put it crassly that contempt for God's stuff is the same as contempt for God himself. If you arrive, let's say, at your office and find that your desk, chair, filing cabinets, briefcases, coffee maker, computer, pictures, and knickknacks are all, I don't think he means the crisps knickknacks, he's American, so (laughs) whatever, are all sitting in the hall outside your office door, you immediately get the point. It's not merely that your stuff is out, but that you are out. So Belshazzar's demeaning of Yahweh's vessels was his way of demeaning Yahweh. Belshazzar was not simply a drunken slob, but a profane slob. And this is why Daniel, when he's talking to Belshazzar, he says, you have lifted up your hand, lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. You've insulted God, he says. Now what does this mean, to be profane? To be profane is to take something that's sacred and then abase it and abuse it. 
And we've seen this. This is the heart of the issue that circled around the whole Charlie Hebdo thing and the, the pictures and the reasons why the Muslims were so angry. It's because they would call this blasphemy and profane use of art. It's what happened a number of years ago. Probably some of you were, were like 10 or 11 or 12 at the time. But anyway, um, when the Jerry Springer musical came out, Jesus was depicted as a big baby wearing a nappy. This is profanity. It's the idea of taking something that's sacred to people and then basing it. It's kind of what goes through your heart when you ever been in a, in a little in a, in a church, an Anglican church or whatever, where they have the kind of the rope at the front, and you just want to step over the rope and just see what happens to you. Um, <laughs> that's kind of like these profane urges in your heart that you know you're not quite sure will God strike me down. Um, actually. To take what's sacred and treat it in a base way, it's not just about you know, temple vessels or Anglican churches or pictures of prophets. It's not, not about that. It's something actually much more widespread than that. It's a failure to see that everything in life is spiritual. and That when we abuse the things around us, we're insulting God. And this is never more true, my friends, than when we are abusing our own and other people's bodies. The God that we worship is a God who inhabits the entire earth. And everything is spiritual. Everything is infused with his delight and his presence. I don't mean that God is in everything in the way that pantheists believe, but I mean that all of life is God's and he created it. And of course this is especially true of your humanity, of your body, of your existence as a person, because you are the pinnacle of his creation. And if, as the Bible shows us, it's not just that the temple in Jerusalem is God's temple, but the whole world is God's temple. And it's not just that the vessels in the temple were God's vessels, but that you are God's vessel, because you're the one in whom God places image. When we take this image and abuse it and abase it, And use it as Belshazzar did just to have fun and not recognize that these are objects of worship. Just as the temple objects where our bodies are are meant to be given to God and worship. Then we are engaging in the same kind of profanity that Belshazzar was. This is especially true for us who are Christians. The Bible says that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And that we're therefore meant to honor God in our bodies. So this guy's life is characterized by this pleasure-seeking urge, this profanity that he doesn't respect God enough to honor God in the way he lives, and the way he uses God's things. And you think, isn't this just so characteristic of the age we live in? I don't think we've ever lived in a more profane age because nobody sees that anything is spiritual anymore. It's all just material stuff for our enjoyment. So there's no consequence with how we live our lives or what we do with the stuff that we own or what we do with our own bodies. It's a very low view of the material world. Not like the Christian view at all. He's a pleasure seeker. He's profane. And here's another thing about him. He's an idolater. Because he then leads all this great party in a worship service to the gods of, it says, gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now I know for us, looking in from the outside, 
it just seems a very stupid thing to do, doesn't it? Because we're so far away from that kind, that form of idol worship in our culture that immediately you think there's absolutely no connection with the world that we live in here. We don't, we don't act like that. We don't treat things that way. But I want to urge you to understand the connections here with exactly how your average Londoners go through life as idolaters in exactly the same ways almost. And I mean it in this way. The first when our lives are more defined by the stuff of the world and we've exchanged the worship of God for the worship of created things. This is what Paul says about idolatry in Romans 1. He puts it like this. He says that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. What Paul means is something like this. That when your life is more about the physical stuff and pleasures and day-to-day pursuits than it is about worshipping God then whether or not you understand yourself this way, you've become an idolater. You're in every way worshipping the gods of gold, the sil- gold and silver, bronze, wood, stone, and all the rest of it. When your life is dominated just by pure materialism, this life is all there is, and I'm just going to get what I can out of it, then you're an idolater because this is your God. That's, it's true in that way, but let me also show you, it's even more acute than that, Look at how Daniel criticizes him in verse 23. He says, You've praised the gods of silver and gold, the bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Now, do you understand what he's saying there? Daniel is saying this, your great sin, Belshazzar, is your failure to say thank you to the God who made you. That your gratitude is misdirected. It doesn't sound like a big deal, does it, at first? Again, Paul says the exact same thing in Romans 1 about idolatry. He says, although they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. It's the same, isn't it? You failed to honor him. You didn't give thanks to him. And I think this is where so many people just do not understand what it means to be a person who lives without relationship to God. That your your dishonor of God is is really in this, in your inability to say thank you to him, to the God who made you, to the God who gave you so many good things. So that the pleasures of this world should be redeemed and refocused in praise to God. But instead, you understand them as an end in themselves. That's idolatry, friends. And you might come back and say, well, it still doesn't sound like a very big deal. In his book on prayer, Tim Keller talks a little bit about this form of of idolatry and this failure to give thanks. And he likens it, he puts it like this. He likens it to plagiarism. He says, what's plagiarism? Plagiarism is claiming that you came up with an idea yourself when you did not. It's it's not acknowledging dependence, that you got the idea from someone else. Plagiarism is a a refusal to give thanks and give credit and is therefore a form of theft. I know in our day and age, we're very hot on issues of plagiarism, copyright, 
uh, patents and all the rest of it. Because people care, it matters who you say thanks to. And then he brings it to a point. He says, cosmic ingratitude is living in the illusion that you are spiritually self-sufficient. Isn't that the heart of Belshazzar's idolatry and his sin? The fact that he's living as though he owns the things around him, that he has no one to thank but the gods of gold and wood and bronze, and that he has this cosmic ingratitude towards the God who made him, who he should have bowed down before and fallen on his face before and prostrate worship. When I think about these things, about this man's character, and what he lives for, that he lives for pleasure, in how he lives, that he lives with this deep irreverence about the stuff of life, that he doesn't recognize that God is interested in the vessels of the temple, in the body, in how he, you live, and in who he attributes it to, that he fails to say thank you to the living God. You think about these characteristics of this man Belshazzar, and friends, isn't this just the perfect summary of what London is like today? of how people live without reference to the God who made them as though he were not there. And if God was insulted by Belshazzar's conduct and actions that day, insulted enough that he takes the trouble to write his judgment on the wall, then we're mistaken if we don't think that God is insulted by so much of what he sees in the city we're in and maybe also in your own life. What does God do? He gives Belshazzar a foretaste of what we will all one day experience. He lets Belshazzar see something of God's judgment over his life, which, friends, the Bible tells us every one of us is going to face God one day. Something similar is going to happen for us, that we will experience something of God's assessment of our lives in the way that Belshazzar experiences it there and then when God writes on the wall and tells him what he thinks about him. Now, for us looking in from the outside at this story, you look at a man like Belshazzar and you think, he deserved it. You know, it's like when you, when you sit down and watch um, a show like The Apprentice and you, you watch how these wallies just go about, you know, just messing everything up and you're shouting at the TV and you're like, you're such an idiot. And then when they get fired, you're like, he deserved it. And it's really obvious from the outside looking in, isn't it? And that's how you feel when you look at a chapter like this. You think, well, of course God's going to be displeased with him. I mean, he's, he's stupid. He's taken God's temple stuff and abused it. And he's, he's having this party on the day when his kingdom is about to fall and he's not even asking God to help him. What an idiot. The much harder thing to do is to look at your own life and take stock right now in this moment and see yourself as God sees you. That's the hardest thing to do. Because we are so easily buying into our own press releases about ourselves. Isn't it the most common thing you hear about people is they think, I'm basically a good person. Man, good enough that you wouldn't mind somebody hearing your inner monologue? Good enough that you wouldn't mind your thoughts being put on the projector behind me? You, you that good? 
Come on, let's think about ourselves in a real way for a moment. You can see it about him. Can you see it about yourself? So what God does is he, he, gives, he gives Belshazzar an insight to what he does think about him. And he writes these words on the wall. And there's this kind of double meaning going on here. Many, many tekel passim. They were weights. So just as the pound coin originally was devised as something to represent a pound of gold, a weight in gold, so also these words meant weights, and they, they were increasing to decreasing. A minor to a shekel, which is about a hundredth of a minor, to a, a half shekel, a passim. And so there's a, there's a kind of sense here that, that God's sort of saying, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, at least I had some respect for him, and you're, what are you? You know, there's a kind of diminishment of the, this kingdom and of the men who rule it from some form of greatness, even though it's flawed greatness, down to this guy Belshazzar, whose life amounts to very little at all. But then Daniel gives him another insight on it. He tells him what these words mean if you read them in Aramaic and switch the vowels up. And he tells them they mean these three things. Numbered. Your days have been numbered, he says, and the king, days of your kingdom are brought to an end. Tekel. You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. That line... You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. I don't think there's any more frightening line in all of Scripture. You've been weighed. Implicitly, you've been weighed by God and found wanting. And it speaks to us, friends, in a couple of profound ways. Firstly, when you reflect on your life in general. You ask yourself the question, does my life amount to something? What am I living for? Am I living for something weighty? Or am I living for something that is broken and about to break beyond repair? What is it that I'm living for? Will it last? Is it worthwhile? And what kingdom am I a part of? You might say, well, I'm not part of any kingdom. I'm not living for any kingdom. Actually, whatever you're doing with your life, whatever you're driving towards, whatever it is that you are plugging your energies and powers and abilities into, that's the kingdom you're building. And just as God would have said to him, many, many tackle passing. This kingdom that you're a part of is about to crumble and fall. I think that this passage is forcing us to reflect on our own lives and what we're living for and ask, what does it amount to? Am I living for something beyond me that's bigger than me and that will last eternally? Or am I living for something very temporary, something that is ultimately broken, something that will crumble and fail? That's one way we can look at this. I think the more personal way you can look at it, though, is when you think about your own life, your own soul. What about my soul? How much does my soul weigh, if I can put it like that? He says, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. An unsurprising judgment about a king who had achieved nothing and was doing nothing with the stuff that he had. But what about us? I think many people go through life with a sense of shallowness, a sense of maybe being a fraud, a sense of maybe being a fake, and of perhaps being found out at some point. Why? Because we carry 
So often we carry guilt, we carry shame, we carry past failure, we carry insecurities, we carry the, the accusations of our conscience. And the fear which a passage like this puts into us is, would God say something like this to me? You've been weighed in the balances and you found wanting. And what was he living for? He was living basically just to be popular in his last moments. What does that amount to at the end of the day? And how many people today are basically living for the same thing? What does God want of him? What does he want of you when you hear words like this? I understand being very direct today. It's unusual for me, right? (laughs) We just want to open up what's in front of us and understand that God speaks, that he's real, that he's the same today, he's a living God. What would he want of you? This day, you're hearing this passage by God's providence. I can tell you what he doesn't want. I can tell you that he doesn't want you to ever react in the way that Belshazzar does. Because what does Belshazzar do when he hears this judgment about his life? He says, okay, Daniel, I'm going to give you your cloak, your gold chain. I'm going to bling you out. I'm going to give you a place of command. I'm going to, you know, make you powerful because you've done what I asked you to do. And I hear it. This is a... What's going on here is that this is a kind of a form of atonement. Belshazzar thinks that given how weightless his life is and how insignificant it is and how little he's done, he thinks, okay, I can do one good thing here. If this is God's servant, then maybe if I'm nice to God's servant, God will be nice to me. And he thinks he can kind of buy himself out of trouble, which, friends, is exactly the same instinct that people feel whenever they sense something of their conscience accusing them and they recognize that before God, they have a problem. And people think, okay, what shall I do about this? Maybe if I just get a little bit more active in charity and if I'm a bit nicer to people, or if I start going to church, and you try and atone for yourself through doing good stuff like he was trying to do here. And friends, what did it amount to before God? Absolutely nothing doesn't change a thing for Belshazzar. I think it's one of the greatest tragedies when I look at the church more broadly in this country that so many people are under the illusion that if they go through the motions, attending the same traditions and rituals year in, year out, or week after week, that somehow they're going to make themselves right before God. You have no idea how far that mentality is from what the scriptures teach. And so many churches just reinforce that point of view because people are just happy. As long as they've sat there, as long as they're going through the motions, that's enough. That's what Belshazzar does when he hears God's judgment about him. He thinks, I can buy this off by being good, by doing some good thing today. Instead, my friends... I think what God wanted of him would have been something like this prayer in Psalm 90. This is a prayer of Moses. And he says, All our days pass away under your wrath. And we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or by reason of strength, 80. So he says, if we're lucky, we live to 80. He says, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone and we fly away. Moses is saying, our lives are very short. 
He says, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? And then he brings it to this focus. He says, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. God gave Belshazzar one great advantage when he spoke to him. He told him how many days he had left. And it was less than one. And he should have felt a sense of the urgency to pray a prayer like that. Lord God, if you're teaching me to number my days, please help me to get a heart of wisdom before you. And the thing I know about God is that whenever he warns people like this through the Bible, if they respond well, in terms of real heartfelt grief over the the wrongs they've done and real desire to change and ask God for his forgiveness and his grace, God quickly acts to bless them. You see it even going on in Nineveh, which was just this dark, dark city which Jonah was sent to, to go and preach. And he says, in so many days, God's going to overthrow your city and destroy you all. And they all get about praying. They all wear sackcloth and ashes. And they start mourning before God and God changes the judgment. He reverses the judgment. And Jonah is so confused because he hates the Ninevites and he gets really grumpy about it. He's like, how come you sent me here to come and preach judgment? You're not even going to judge them. At least kill them, Lord. That's what I came for. But it's not God's character. When God speaks to your conscience, when he warns you about where you're at before him, he doesn't do it to seal you in judgment and make you feel utterly doomed and without hope. He does it to give you a seed of hope. Maybe today God can change your life. That's what he would want Belshazzar to understand. That's what I think God was speaking to some of you today. He could have come to know God's gracious character there and then. I'm not saying it would have meant that he didn't die or that his kingdom would never have been overthrown. But God doesn't speak for no reason. He speaks to unlock the opportunity for change. And where he failed, because he did fail, he failed to understand how he could change before God. Where he failed, his failure becomes our opportunity because, friends, we're reading this story 2,700 years on, and somehow the Word of God still has a resonance and a power such that some of you are feeling something of the Holy Spirit speaking to you today. You're feeling something of the conviction that you need to get right before God, even right now. And so I want to ask you. Are you a person who's living a life that's marked by pleasure-seeking, by profanity in the sense that you don't see that all of life is spiritual and all of it matters to God? And of idolatry in the sense of a failure to give thanks to the God who made you. If that's true of you, I want to ask you, do you know what you need to do? The only person in the Bible whose life was weighed like this and was not found wanting is Jesus Christ. To be a Christian is not to try and live a weighty life that somehow amounts to something so that God will love you more. It's to recognize that you, like Belshazzar, have a spiritually bankrupt life 
And that if you were put in front of him, put on the scales as it were, the weight of your wrong would far outweigh the weight of any good you've done. And you think, well, what hope is there in a message like that? Friends, it is the most profoundly hopeful message you could ever hear. Because the Bible also tells us that Jesus himself is the only one who's been weighed in the balances and not found wanting. The only one who lived a life that could be considered and accounted perfect before God. A life in whom God took pleasure. This is why God repeatedly says about him in the Gospels, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And he says it because for you to be a Christian, you may, if you're a Christian here today and you think, there's so much in my life that I'm not happy about and I feel the Holy Spirit convicting me. Or if you're not a Christian today and you think, I'm not sure what would happen to me if I were to face God right now, what he would say about my life. The answer for all of us is exactly the same. Come to Jesus. To be a Christian is to be a person whose life is hidden within Christ so that all of his strength, all of his righteousness, all of his weightiness on God's scales becomes yours. It's almost like if you can imagine these cosmic scales in the sense that it's depicted here, you've been found in the balances and found, weighed in the balances and found wanting. If Jesus is one side of the scale, to be a Christian is to, is to stand on his side, not the other side. And recognize that all of his weightiness is given to you. Not because you've earned it, not because you deserve it, but as a gift. And that he gives you his perfect record. And so friends, I want to urge you, God cares how you respond. But he offers you hope in Christ. If you're a person who... In hearing this, you think, I just need to have dealings with God today. I want us to bow our heads and just be quiet for a couple of moments. We're going to take communion in a second. But I think in this quiet moment, you can have a chance to say to God something of your response to this message. Response to what God may be saying to you about your life, its direction, its purpose, and what you've been living for. And ask that the living God will enable you to live for him instead of the wrong things. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we live in a a world in which the fear of you has all but evaporated. There's so little consciousness of the danger that we're in when we live lives that offend you. And therefore so little urgency to run to you for hope and grace and mercy. Father, I want to say again a thank you. That because we know Jesus, we know hope. And we know the reality of your mercy that is free. That is offered to anybody who wants to come to you. And I ask, Lord God, that today where your Holy Spirit is speaking to individuals about their situation, I ask, Lord God, that you would help us 
to respond rightly, not like Belshazzar, not like we might do on any other day. But to recognize that in this moment, Lord, you give a window, you give an opportunity to find rightness before you. And I pray, Lord God, that by your spirit, you would speak to hearts and bring about transformation. We want to love you. We want to live for you. We want to honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.